Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to take up Matthew 10, verses 16 through 32. We're talking about Jesus instructing his disciples as they prepared to go out onto their first missionary journey. Verse 16, Jesus says this, Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as harmless as doves. So this is interesting. Jesus compares his apostles, his 12 apostles, to three different animals, sheep, serpents, and doves. Well, let's look at the characteristics and see what he's trying to get at, the characteristics of these animals to see what he was trying to get at. Well, first of all, what are the characteristics of a sheep? They're meek, they're humble, they're harmless, they're inoffensive, they're weak and defenseless. So that's the way the apostles were. They, after all, they were poor, ignorant fishermen. And sheep, if they act like that, are going to get eaten up by wolves. Therefore, for that reason, since wolves will eat up a sheep, be as shrewd as serpents. Well, what's a serpent like? A serpent is sharp-sighted and cunning. They use various arts and stratagems for their own preservation. Preservation. Here's some scriptures, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul referring to that same serpent, he says, But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. So cunning means to be sharp and wise. So how can the apostles be innocent and meek and humble and harmless like a sheep, but wise and cunning as a serpent? Well, they're going to have to be, because if they were just like a sheep, without being like a serpent, they'd be destroyed. The wolves would eat them. But if they're smart and cunning, they'll, be, they'll figure out a way not to get eaten by the wolves. They should use all proper methods to preserve themselves from the rage of men. They should not expose themselves to unnecessary dangers. Now, the third animal that they were compared to was a dove. John Gill says a dove, a dove is simple even to stupidity. Hosea 7.11, so Ephraim has become like a silly, senseless dove they call to Egypt and they go to Assyria. Well, the qualities of the dove and the serpent are needed. If, if the disciples, if the apostles were like doves only, they would get themselves killed. If they were like the serpent only, they would be evil. So we want nice people that are smart and not stupid. Now, this is a very interesting thing. This these apostles would, should act contrary to modern faith message, word faith arrogance. And I've seen a lot of this. I'll give you a personal example. When I was in college, this brother named Mark, who's now deceased in a very unfortunate manner, which I'm about to tell you about, we, we were working on a Christian coffee house. He was sitting in a low-silled window, high-window old building, six floors up. And I got scared. I said, you've got to be careful, Mark. You're going to fall down. And he would say, no, 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 you know, God's no harm shall befall me. God will protect me. And he started quoting all the faith quote passages. Well, a few months later, he was working at the uh, construction work at the top of a 10-story building. He was pulling a wheelbarrow that had semen in it, and he was walking backwards, wasn't watching where he was going, fell down a 10-story elevator shaft, and, of course, he was dead on arrival at the bottom. This was a brother in my fellowship group. This, when you are to be wise as a serpent, it means don't expose yourself to unnecessary dangers. Be smart. Don't be foolish. I recall also a brother in China. In China, everybody knows that the government will leave meetings alone if they're under 25 people or so. He insisted, right when the Olympics was coming at the Fourth Ring Road in Beijing, he insisted on having huge church meetings right there on the Fourth Ring Road. A friend of mine warned him about that and said, you ought not to do that. And he said, no harm shall come up near upon my house. And he started quoting all the faith messages. This guy was a Kenneth Copenite. As I find, yes, even in China, 
the the word faith heresy is spreading through China. In fact, my wife and I lived in an apartment building that you could look out the window and see the office building where Kenneth Copeland himself, the guru of the whole heresy, came to speak in Beijing. So, uh, of course, the man, the brother got arrested. His business was destroyed. He was shipping Bibles all over China. That great work was destroyed. It was a disaster because he wasn't as shrewd as a serpent. So, yes, yeah, so be innocent. Be like a dove. And, and, and a dove does not provoke people. A dove is gentle and kind. Don't go out of the way to provoke people. Don't go looking for trouble. If it comes, be smart like a snake and avoid it if you can. But don't go out and provoking people to bring wrath down on your head. And, and i give you another example. In Chengdu, just recently, Wang Yi, very courageous Christian man, just got arrested. His whole church busted up. It made the national news in America. And I remember a year ago when I heard about his church, I, I emailed a friend of mine and said, this brother is asking for trouble. They're going to arrest him. If, if it's over 25 people, they're going to come after him sooner or later. And sure enough, was he acting as wise as a serpent? Well, I, I don't want to judge somebody else's wisdom or not, but it didn't seem to me like he was. So anyway, these that's, that's the principle. Don't provoke wrath. Be gentle. Be kind. But be clever. Be smart. Don't be dumb. Don't get yourself killed unnecessarily. Matthew 10, verse 17. Why should they act this way? Verse 17, because people will hand you over to Sanhedrins and flog you in their synagogues. Beware of them. Well, what's the Sanhedrin or Sanhedrin? I've heard some people pronounce it. The NIV translates it as a local council. They were local courts, lower courts connected with the synagogues, with the local synagogues. They tried less serious cases. There were three levels of the Sanhedrin. There was the Great Sanhedrin, which consisted of 71 persons, and that meeting was held only in Jerusalem, like, kind of like our Supreme Court. There was a lesser Sanhedrin that had 23 members. That was held in every place in Israel where there were 120 Israelites. And then there was a lowest level Sanhedrin that consisted only of three members, and that was in any Israeli town where there were less than 120 Israelites. And that's what Jesus was referring to here. Clark says the lowest level Sanhedrin. He said they will flog you in their synagogues. Well, the question then is, why would somebody whip get whipped in a synagogue? Why would the Jews whip you during a religious service? Well, that's not what it means. Because the lower courts were connected with the local synagogues, and if the lower court found you guilty, they would they would flog you. It doesn't mean the flogging was done in the synagogue itself. It doesn't mean they would be flogged in the religious service. It would mean they would be flogged in the synagogue to which the Sanhedrin was attached after they tried you with their three-man court. People will hand you over. There's going to be a lot of opposition to the gospel. That's something I never have understood. The Prince of Peace comes to the world, offers salvation, and offers incredible spiritual treasures, peace, joy, financial uh, help in times of economic trouble, healing, all kinds of wonderful stuff that Jesus offers. And instead of accepting it, they turn you over to the cops. Kind of like what's going on in China today. Who's going to turn? It says people will turn them over. Who? John Gill says this. Men of note and authority, ecclesiastical and civil governors of the people, the scribes, Pharisees, elders, and chief priests, and other rulers. Jesus predicted this flogging in another place. Uh, this is um, when he was at a different time. It was during Passion Week, the week before he died. In Matthew 23, verse 34, Jesus t tells his apostles, tells his disciples, he says, this is why I am sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Well, actually, he was speaking to the Pharisees. He said, this is why I am sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. He's using Old Testament terminology. He's referring to evangelists, prophets, and apostles, New Testament uh, workers. I'm sending you these guys 
Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogue, same expression, and, and hound from town to town. Luke 12, verse 11, whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. All right, so there you see that, obviously, the Jews were opposed to Jesus from the get-go, and they were opposed to his followers, and they were cruel about it, and they were persecutory about it. Well, when did this prediction come true about they will flog you in your synagogues? Well, we know they did it after Jesus died, between AD 30 and AD 70. No question about that. Uh, but on this first missionary journey, there is no recorded instance of this happening. Now, I think that's probably because the Jews were afraid to do that before Jesus' death. They were scared of a popular riot. They were scared of the people. And that's easy to see. There's different places in the Gospels where you can see that the Sadducees and the Pharisees kept their mouths shut because they were scared of the people. But after the death of Christ, well, that's different. Jesus had uh, allegedly been silenced by his crucifixion, and now he's not so popular and so we know that the persecution happened after Jesus died. So maybe Jesus is preparing his apostles, because a lot of these apostles kept on spreading the Gospels after Jesus died, not just during this first missionary journey in Israel, but after Jesus' death, resurrection, and Pentecost. So John Gill says this, referring to when the, this prediction of the flogging in the synagogues and persecution took place, John Gill says this, Now, as these things did not befall the apostles till after the death of Christ, it is clear that the context refers not to their first, but to an after mission, not to the mission they're just getting ready to go on, but to their missions after Jesus' death. Now, here's some examples of this Jewish persecution of the early church. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Now, as they were speaking to the people, the priest, the commander of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them. Acts 22, verse 19. But I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue, this is Paul speaking, but I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. So the great apostle Paul started out his career by persecuting Christians from one synagogue to the next. Just as Jesus predicted, they will flog you in the synagogues. They will pursue you from synagogue to synagogue. 2 Corinthians 11:24. Five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews, Paul said. From the Jews, not the Romans, the Jews. So the Jews persecuted the Messiah and the Messiah's people. This was predicted by Jesus early on in this early part of his ministry and also in the last week, Passion Week in Matthew 23. Going on to verse 18 in Matthew 10. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the nations. Now, these governors and kings are talking about Roman governors. John Gill says, for example, Paul himself was taken before Galileo, Galileo, Felix, and Festus, right there at the end of the book of Acts. There's some kings that he was taking before, that Christians were taken before. Uh, Herod, Herod Agrippa, uh, Nero, Paul was in jail in Rome during Nero's time. Domitian, in the later first century A.D., Adam Clark says, By governors and kings we may understand the Roman proconsuls, governors of provinces, and the kings who were tributary to the Roman government, and the emperors themselves, before whom many of the primitive Christians were brought. So again, Jesus' prediction was absolutely true. The Christians, these humble fishermen, ended up at the highest levels of government all throughout the Roman Empire, telling about Jesus and telling the nations about Jesus, the Gentiles. So there's a hint here in this most Jewish of Gospels. Here's a hint that the Gospel would shortly be going beyond the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember, Jesus said, I came, I don't want you to go to the Samaritans. I don't want you to go to the Gentiles. He said that in the first part of Matthew 10. But here he gives a hint that pretty soon the Gospel is going to go out 
beyond Samaria and to the Gentiles before governors and kings and the nations. So Jesus is getting ahead. He's saying right now you're going to focus on the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but sooner or later the message is going to go out to the world at large, and so he's getting them ready for that. Matthew verse 10, verses 9, chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. But when they hand you over, in other words, when these people, these rulers, these Jewish authorities hang, hand you over to the Sanhedrins, but when they hand you over, don't worry about how, and also to the Gentile leaders, the governors, the kings, the emperor, and all these people, but when people hand you over to them, don't worry about how or what you should speak. For you will be given what to say at that hour, because you are not speaking, but the Spirit of your Father is speaking through you. And of course, when it says you are not speaking, it means you are not merely speaking. You're not speaking on your own, but you're also speaking by the Spirit of your Father. The Holy Spirit is speaking through you. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus in some places in Romans. I forgot where. And here, he's called the Spirit of your Father. He's called the Holy Spirit who belongs to God the Father. So the Holy Spirit belongs to both God the Father and God the Son, tightly connected Jesus is taking care of a natural fear of the apostles here. Remember, they were illiterate, uneducated, poor fishermen. And Jesus said, don't worry. It doesn't matter that you're uneducated. I'm going to give you words to speak before these big shots that are going to threaten you and interrogate you. They weren't to worry about taking pains and racking their thoughts. They weren't supposed to prepare a studied, elaborate oration dressed up with rhetoric, as John Gill says. They're just supposed to get up there and tell the truth. Of course, this happened. Peter and John got caught before Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, I believe it was. Stephen on his trial, he didn't prepare. And when he gave that beautiful testimony in Acts 7, right before they stoned him, and he looked up and saw Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father, the Holy Spirit will give us, and I believe this is applicable to Christians today, that the Holy Spirit will give words of testimony at the proper time when, they're nece when it's necessary. Matthew 10, verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will even rise up against their parents and have them put to death. Now, this is the worst kind of persecution when family members turn on you, and that's how bad it is. People want to follow Jesus. I saw this all the time in China as typical Buddhist parents and Chinese or communist parents sometimes, and Chinese children. I remember one father said, you'll never set foot in this house if you marry a Christian guy. That kind of thing. In fact, I knew two people like that, two sisters. They both ended up marrying Christians, though. Brother will betray brother to death and a father is child. Children will even rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And that's even worse when your own kids turn you over to the cops. And I would ask a question here. What does this say about the doctrine of household salvation? You've heard that, that strange doctrine. That if one person believes in a household, that means that God's promised that all the rest of the people in the household are going to believe. I don't believe that, not for one minute. God never promises that. And right here, this is what Jesus promises. Brother will betray brother to death. Does that sound like household salvation? Children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death? Does that sound like household salvation? Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. Now, isn't this a great thing to tell people that you're getting ready to send out? Isn't this something to encourage them? People are going to betray you. They're going to turn you over to the authorities. You're going to be whipped. What kind of power did Jesus have over these 12 ignorant fishermen to get them to give up their jobs, to give up their families, and go out and basically get killed? And most of them were killed eventually. John made it. He made it to the Isle of Patmos where he was imprisoned as an exile. Peter was executed. Paul wasn't here being talked to, but he ended up being executed. And if you will look at traditions of most of the apostles, they, they were killed. Most of them were executed. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, and yet they still went out. Jesus then, after giving them the bad news, he's trying to prepare them. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be delivered. 
Now the next question is, that's the good news, what does he mean by the end? The end of what? Well, most people take this as the end of time, end of the world. This is what John Gill says. That makes no sense. How are the people that he's talking to going to endure to the end of the world? In fact, most Christians are not going to endure to the end of the world because most, the overwhelming majority of Christians are going to die before the end of the world. That's not what it means. John Gill, Adam Clark, I said Gill believed that, believed that it was the end of time. No, he just suggests that that's one possible, possible option. But actually, John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown all say this refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in 8070. The Jews are going to be out after you. They're going to be persecuting you. But when the Romans destroy Jerusalem and Israel in 8070, there's not going to be any more Sanhedrins to flog you. There's not going to be any more synagogues to, to interrogate you. That's going to be it. They're not going to be any more Jews to turn you over to the Roman authorities. They're going to be finished, and you're going to be delivered. That makes more sense. It's the correct option, especially because of the context. If we drop down to verse 23 here, Jesus says, But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Does that sound like the end of the world? It sounds like, no, this is what's happening to the Jews right then before they, before they were destroyed. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like what happened to, to the disciples who went evangelizing the cities of Israel for 40 years from 8030 when Jesus died until 8070 when the Son of Man came in judgment upon Israel. So those three commentators agree with me, Gil Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, that Jesus meant here that the one who endures to the end of the Jewish order will be delivered. And at the time when the Jews are destroyed, you're going to be delivered from the Jewish persecution. That's hard for people who've been doused and soaked in dispensationalism, in dispensational pre-mill, pre-trib eschatology to believe. But in a happier time in the 19th century when we didn't have dispensationalism, everybody understood what this meant. This didn't mean the end of the world. Here's another, the delivers to the end will be delivered. Matthew 24, Olivet Discourse, which I believe refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered to the end of the Roman, to the end of the Jewish kingdom, the end of the Jewish war. Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. In other words, we're going to be a church that's going to survive the house, the Christian house is going to survive the Jewish persecution if we hold on until, if we all we got to do is hold on to the end of the Jewish order. Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. I remember as a high school kid reading this, and of course I was soaked in Hal Lindsey, pre-trib, pre-mill, pre-everything, pre-intelligence, eschatology. And I'd say, how did that? How how are these people going to move from cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes at the end of time? They're going to be preaching for two thousand years in Israel. You're not going to finish. It's going to take over two thousand years to finish going through the cities of Israel. That makes no sense. And right then, a seed of doubt was planted in my mind. I said, I don't understand this. I need to understand this. And I understood it now. And what I understand is that dispensational is, is dispensational pre-trib pre-mill ideology. I. I, I I won't even call it theology, is utterly wrong. It makes no sense. And this verse right here stab, puts a stake in its heart. Here's some scriptures talking about this end here being 8070. In Matthew 16, verse 28, this is the Mount, Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's referring to 8070. I don't have time to talk about why it does. So, some people don't agree with that. Some people say it's something else. 
the transfiguration or the end of the world. But no, it's referring to the end of the Jewish age. Matthew twenty four fourteen. The gospel this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. That's not the end of the world, that's the end of the Jewish nation. Matthew twenty four verse twenty seven, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be in judgment upon Israel. 8070, not the end of the world. Matthew 24, verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What part of this generation do we not understand? He's talking to his disciples, and he says, This generation will not pass away. Well, those people didn't live for 2,000 years. They've already passed away, and they and 8070, was the, that generation was still there, and that's when all those things took place, the destruction of Israel. Hebrews 10:25, not forsaking our own assembling together as the, is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What? The day of judgment that's about to come on Israel. James 5, verse 7 through 9, therefore be patient, brethren, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord at the end of the world? No, because he drops down on a few verses later, and he says the coming of the Lord is near. 2,000 plus years is not near to James. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Near, folks, is talking about his coming to deliver the church from the persecuting Jews. Jesus talked about this theme from the get-go right here in his early commissioning of the 12 apostles all the way through the end of his life, the Passion Week, the Olivet Discourse. He's talking about the coming, uh, his coming to deliver his persecuted church from the persecuting Jews. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. So that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Right at the door? That's 40 years from AD 30. It's not 2,000 plus years. Right at the door. Now, despite all that, then my NIV study Bible says this. The saying, the saying that, that uh, the apostles would not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. This is what my NIV study Bible note says. The saying seems to teach that the gospel will continue to be preached to the Jews until Christ's second coming. Really? How could intelligent people write this? I guess I was a little wired up when I wrote my notes here, but I'll just read what I said. Are we then to say that the, that the disciples that Jesus spoke to are still preaching in Israel, or even their successors for that matter? They're still preaching in Israel? It didn't say, go, it didn't say the gospel is going to keep going through the Jews. It said Israel. That's a geographical place. If you want to be literal about it, and we know how dispensationalists want to be literal, the NIV study Bible position is utterly absurd. John Gill opposes this interpretation that that the, when the Son of Man comes is at the end of time, but it's not at the end of time. It's rather at the uh, AD 70. John Gill says, This coming is not to be understood of his second coming to judgment. Hear, hear, John Gill. There's some other kind of weird interpretations. Adam Clark quoted John Lightfoot, the famous Puritan theologian, that said that it's talking about when Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, you're gonna, you won't finish going through the city of Israel until the Son of Man comes back to life. Well, that's too short. At the end of the world is too long, but that's too short. That doesn't give them enough time. Well, I guess it says you will not finish going through the city of Israel until the Son of Man comes, but I don't think that's reasonable. The day of Pentecost is another suggestion. Again, I believe it's too short. Or you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes and catches up with you on foot. <laughs> so, no, I don't think so. This coming, I believe, is at eighty seventy when... Jesus came to destroy Jerusalem 
through the agency of the Roman Empire. And when Jesus says flee from city to city, what he means is, look, they persecute you in one city. Okay, quit preaching there. Go to the next one. Keep moving. Very practical advice. Keep moving. Don't let the persecution stop you. Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Now, Beelzebul, of course, is the name that, uh, which was applied to the devil. The Jews started calling Satan Beelzebul. And they, Jesus says, look, they call me Beelzebul. How much more? What are they going to do to you? They, again, Jesus is still giving them the bad news about what they're facing when they go out to preach. They're going to call you all sort of names because they did the same thing to me. Now, Let's look. Actually, they, well, there's no recorded instance of where they directly called him Beelzebul, but there were places where they said he had a demon and that he was in league with Satan. For example, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Matthew chapter 12, verses 26 through 27. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them? For this reason they will be your judges. So they didn't call him Beelzebul, but they said he was casting out demons by Beelzebul, which is close enough for Jesus to say, hey, they've called me Beelzebul. And more than once Jesus was charged with having a demon. In Mark chapter 3, verse 30, they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. In John 7, verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who needs to kill you? You have a demon. John 8, verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The Jews couldn't decide what's worse, being demon-possessed or being a Samaritan. So Jesus was called all kinds of blasphemous things, which I believe is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, attributing to the Holy Spirit that, attributing to the devil that which is of the Holy Spirit. All right, now well, let's go back and look at the, the, this term, Beelzebul. It's a very picturesque term, Beelzebul. He was, as I said, considered the prince of demons, Satan. And this phrase here is Greek, Beelzebul. The Hebrew form that the Greek was trying to, to, to translate is Beelzebub. Now, I looked this up on, in Wikipedia as well as looking at some of my notes here. It's a very interesting uh, derivation, etymology of this word. Beelzebub in Hebrew literally means Lord of the Flies. Now, there's some options of how, where this name came from. Apparently, Beelzebub was a, an ancient god of the Ekronites. One of, Ekron was one of the Philistine cities on, near, down there on the, near the coast. And it's speculated that this idol was in the form of a fly, or perhaps there was an abundance of flies around the meat that was offered to the idol, or perhaps the idol was invoked to drive away flies. We don't know for sure. This is John Gill's speculation. But at any rate, the, the, the demon was called Lord, Baal is Lord, Lord of the Flies. Well, when they, got around, when they got around to using the Greek, and I don't know why they changed it, but the Greek means God of the Dunghill. Let me read Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. All the Greek manuscripts write Beelzebul, not Bub, which is Hebrew, but Bull, which is Greek, which undoubtedly is the right form of this word. The other reading came in no doubt from the Old Testament Beelzebub. So anyway, uh, I don't somehow, I don't know how this happened. In the Old Testament, he's called Beelzebul. In the New Testament, Beelzebul. Beelzebub in the Old Testament. In Hebrew, he's the Lord of the Flies. Beelzebul in the New Testament, he's the Lord of the Dunghill. Either way, perfectly nasty name to give to the devil. And he deserves it because he's nasty. Sometimes people uh, speculate that the ancient Hebrews 
mocked Beelzebub by calling him Beelzebul. Or excuse me, they they um, that the name was the actual name was Beelzebul, which means exalted Baal or Prince Baal. That's what the Ekronites were calling him, and they made fun of that by saying, "No, he's Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies." Who knows? I don't know. Wherever it came from, we know now. Beelzebul, that's the devil. Beelzebub, that's the devil. Lord of the Flies, Lord of the Dunghill, whatever. Now, why did Jesus say that? A disciple is not above his teacher. Was he trying to keep his disciples humble? I used to think that when I read this verse. No, 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 no. Is a slave above his master? No. This is not what Jesus was trying to talk. He was trying to say they just like master. They treat the master one way, they treat his slaves the same way. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. He's trying to fortify them against the upcoming persecution. Luke chapter six verse forty. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. In other words, you disciples are going to be fully trained on how to spread the gospel, and you're going to get persecuted, just like I was. John chapter 13, verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. John 15:20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So you that is a common teaching that Jesus gave. Expect that which was given to me to be done unto you. Matthew 16, verse 26. Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Uh, therefore, what's the therefore therefore? Well, I suppose that because Jesus is the head of his household, the head of his church, that just as Jesus would be persecuted, the disciples would be persecuted, but just so as Jesus takes care of his house, you're going to be taken care of too, is what I suppose the therefore is therefore. I've learned something in Greek, that word un sometimes doesn't mean therefore, sometimes it just means then. Uh, we're moving on to the next verse, so sometimes the therefore has no reason to be therefore. But at any rate, do not fear them. Why? There's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Nothing evil will not be concealed. What does that mean? All the Pharisees, their hypocritical pretenses at piety will no longer win a claim, and the Christians will be vindicated. All of their hypocrisy, all of their viciousness is going to be exposed, and all of their lies about you Christians, you disciples of Jesus, those lies will be exposed, and it's all going to be made known, and the world will know that you were persecuted wrongly. That's what he's getting at. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14, chapter 12, verse 14, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. This might refer to 8070, by the way, not the end of time. It says before the time. But the point is, is that God is going to bring to light things that were hidden, all the hypocrisy and lies. Matthew 10, verse 27 through 28. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus here is telling his apostles to speak the gospel without fear. That's the theme of the verse here. Don't worry. Despite all this persecution that I'm warning you about, you are not to fear. You don't need to worry. What I tell you in darkness, that means in privacy of my teaching you, in private teaching, speak it out loud in the open public. 
what you hear whispered in your ear. Jesus here is alluding to the customs of Jewish rabbis and doctors. Each one of them had an interpreter, and the teacher would whisper into the ear of the interpreter, and the interpreter would speak it out to the to the crowd, sort of like a ancient microphone, if you would. So, if you would, so the interpreter would then deliver the doctrine to the people. I guess the old rabbis too weak to speak out loud. I don't know, but at any rate. What he's saying is, I've whispered in your ear, and now you go out and tell the people. Proclaim it upon the housetops. The housetops were flat. Provides a good platform for preaching out loud. So what Jesus is saying, don't be worried about all this persecution. You keep preaching loud as you can. I watch and see what's happening in China. Those people are persecuted terribly, and they just keep right on preaching. They don't stop, and the church keeps right on growing. And Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping, Mao Zedong Ping, is going to lose. He's going to lose that battle. I predict it right now. He will lose. Fear him. Uh, do not fear those who kill the body. It is real easy to forget how nasty the Jewish establishment was toward believers in Jesus. I've sort of emphasized that as I've gone through here about the Jews persecuting the Christians from synagogue to synagogue. It's what the whole Olivet Discourse was about. Not about the end of the world. It was about the persecution of the early church by Jews. And we remember Paul. He was going around throwing Christians in jail. But Jesus said, don't, don't fear these people. They can't. They, they might be able to kill you, but they're not going to kill your soul. This, by the way, shows that there is a definite distinction between the body and the soul, and the soul exists independently of the body. It is an immaterial thing that exists that does not need the body to exist. It doesn't prove it. At least it tends to prove it very strongly. Now, notice that God is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Well, obviously, he's not going to do that to Christians. He's referring to non-Christians. But notice the soul and the body. The body is in hell. We tend to think a lot of times that only the soul ends up in hell. No, the body does too because there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust at the end of the age, at the end of the world. And in order for people to physically spend eternity in hell, they've got to have their body resurrected. And that, and Jesus teaches that very clearly, the body will be resurrected and cast into hell. In Luke 12, verse 4, this is a synoptic parallel of, of our passage here. Jesus says to the disciples, I say to you, my friends, he calls them friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. He's saying, look, that's the worst that can happen to you. They can kill the body, but they're not going to kill the soul. You're going to live forever. And he calls them my friends. It's as, it's as if he felt that such sufferings would create a bond between him and them. He He's going to suffer and they're going to suffer, but we're all going to be together in heaven in our eternal existence. Matthew 10, verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Again, the context of this is persecution. And, he's, and God is saying, and Jesus is saying, look, if God can take care of a sparrow, he can take care of you in the midst of all your persecution. Verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Again, the context is persecution. Don't worry. Jesus has got everything under control because he's got all your hairs counted. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. The numbering of our head shows that God's perfect knowledge, his divine providence, which, of course, is a great consolation to people who are being afflicted because if God cares enough to count, your, to count the hairs on your head, he cares enough to deliver you from these persecuted authorities. Adam Clark says this, Nothing is more astonishing than the care and concern of God for his followers. He will never leave us and he will never desert us, as the book of Hebrews says. Luke chapter 21, verse 18, Yet not a hair of your head will perish. Luke 21, if I remember correctly, is the Olivet Discourse. Not a hair of your head will perish when the Jews start coming after you. Now, that means, now what does that mean? He's already said that they can kill the body. Well, it means that, yeah, you might die and your, your, the hair of your head will perish then, but, uh, but when you're resurrected, the hair on your head is not going to perish. 
Jesus takes the long view, which is hard for us to do down here in this veil of tears, but he, he takes the long view. It's all going to be all right in the end. All right, we're almost finished. We need to take care of a harmonization problem. In Matthew 10, verse 29, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? That means each sparrow would be worth one half cent. But if we go to the parallel passage in Luke chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus says this, Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Which is not quite the same. Matthew 10:29, one sparrow is worth a half cent. And in Luke 12, cent, one sparrow is worth 0.4 cents. Take two divided by five and you get 40% of 0.4 cents. So a half cent and 0.4 cent. Well, you round off 0.4 cents to a half cent. That's close enough. Just speaking in round terms. They weren't, Jesus wasn't speaking in terms of mathematical precision here. So liberals, you can just rest assured there are no errors in the Bible. I'm finished with this section of Matthew 10. We'll start with Matthew 10 verse 32 next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.